about our circumstances without necessarily thinking about the complete attention to detail of how I might start my next phrase with the next letter of the alphabet. And as Jeremiah works through this final prayer, I believe that this chapter also provides for us a crucial template in how we as Christians should also pray through suffering. And so as we study Lamentations chapter 5 today, as we wrap up this study, I want us to see four lessons in how to pray through suffering. Four lessons in how to pray through suffering. And particularly, we're going to take these first 18 verses at once. And in these first 18 verses, I will particularly draw out two lessons on how to pray through suffering. And so the first lesson is to pour out your suffering. Pour out your suffering. And we see that immediately come out in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And the key word here is that first word, remember. And it's not remember as we would normally think of it, as in you have forgotten something and now you need to bring it back to the front of your mind. God does not forget things. In 1 John 3.20, it says that God knows everything. So I do not think Jeremiah is calling on God because God is lacking some sort of awareness or has forgotten about their suffering. Rather, what I think it is, is that when Jeremiah is calling on God to remember, he's appealing for God to act once again according to his very own promises and nature. And I think that this is a consistent pattern for that word remember as we've seen through the Bible. For example, in Exodus 2, while Israel is suffering under the bondage of Egyptian slavery, it says God remembered his covenant with his people and sent Moses to Israel to lead and deliver them from oppression. In Psalm 25, David cries out to the Lord for mercy, and he says, Remember not the sins of my youth. This verb remember in our Bibles is far more rich than just recalling something into your mind again. As we see in these examples, calling God to remember is a call for God to lovingly deliver on the promises he has made. And then in the following next 18 verses, Jeremiah goes through and summarizes all the sufferings Judah has gone through again. And I think we've talked a lot about the gruesome details and lamentations already, so I'm just going to quickly bullet through some of these sufferings. Verse 3, he talks about how they are considered orphans and widows. And this is likely because the older men were soldiers who ended up dying in battle or kidnapped. So now they're leaving all the families without fathers. Verse 4, we see that not only did the Babylonians seize their land, they also took control of their resources. So wood or water, which you used to just get by a nearby brook or you could just chop down a few trees, now they have to go out and pay for what they thought were basic necessities. Verse 6, for some, starvation is just so painful that they've decided that I'm just going to turn myself in to the Egyptians and Assyrians. It's better off being a slave. Verse 13, we see that their young children are forced into harsh labor, that their bodies just simply could never endure. But notice that as Jeremiah lists out all these trials and suffering, all these trials and sufferings come all under the umbrella of verse 1, asking God to remember. What Jeremiah is doing is that he is staking his claim on God's promise to remember. When Jeremiah is listing out his pain and his anguish, he's not doing this because he thinks somehow the Lord has forgotten, 
But he's bringing it before the Lord and trusting that God can deliver them according to his steadfast love for his covenant people. And what Jeremiah models for us here is how we as Christians can relate to God even in the midst of our own suffering. If any of you have ever reached a point in your life where the suffering has just become overwhelming or maybe even at times felt unbearable, we know that oftentimes our hearts are prone to turn away from God or to shut ourselves off from God. But what Jeremiah demonstrates so clearly for us here is that God not only knows your suffering, but he also invites you to pour out your hearts to him in the midst of some of your most debilitating trials. What Jeremiah models for us here is that we can cry out to God with the full reality of everything we have gone through. We do not need to hold back when we pray to God about our suffering. Psalm 56, 8 reads, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? There is not a tear that you have shed that God is not aware of. He knows each one of them, and he has put them all in his bottle. God knows what you are going through, and so you can run out to him, pouring out your most vulnerable and deepest struggles. God knows about the suffering in your illness. God knows the pressures you face at your school or in your job. God knows about your lost friendships. He knows about your heartbreak. God knows, and God remembers, so you can pour out to him. He will meet your trials according to the promises of his loving kindness. And one day you will truly indeed see that. No matter what you have done, no matter how you have sinned against him, because of your righteousness in Christ, God invites you to draw near to him. And he wants you to pour out all your suffering to him. You are never at a place so far from God in your life that he rejects you. So bring everything, bring all your pain, bring all your tears, bring all your trials before him. That's our first lesson in how to pray through suffering. The second lesson in how to pray through suffering is to profess your sin. So we have pour out your sufferings, and the next lesson now is to profess your sin. This is the second key lesson. Is to to the second key lesson in praying through suffering is to profess your sin. As Jeremiah lists out all his sufferings, we see that he also often intermingles it with a recognition of Judah's sin. Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. In both these cases, we see that Jeremiah acknowledges that their sufferings are the very real consequences of their sin. And what's unique about Lamentations is that it never wavers in its conviction that God has punished for what his covenant people have done. But this book also maintains a strong determination throughout all the chapters to confess sin and strive to restore Judah again as a covenant partner of God. And this is another key lesson for us to practice when we pray to God about our suffering. There are times when we suffer because our trials are directly given to us by the Lord as a way to reprove and correct us from a particular sin we may be engaged in. And just like what we see with Judah, in those cases, certainly we need to come before the Lord and confess our sins with grief because God does desire 
our holiness. And this is partially what Lamentations is striving to do. As 1 John 1.9 reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's through professing our sins in prayer that we are able to experience and understand the full blessings of God's forgiveness of us. It's through professing our sins that we recognize that our suffering might actually be needed and necessary for us to find correction for what we have done. But even in times where we are suffering, and it might not be a known direct result of what we've done, I think this lesson is still applicable. We still need to strive to confess sin in our prayers. And I think the reason for this is that suffering often tends to distract us from ongoing sins in our lives. When we are suffering, our defenses to watch out and guard against sin are often at their weakest. And so confessing sin helps us to recognize that at our core, our deepest need is not necessarily for our suffering to end, but that we need forgiveness and grace. When we confess our sin, even in our deepest sufferings, we realize how broken we truly are. And do not get me wrong, I know many of you in this room are suffering in ways that I cannot even come close to imagining or even understanding. Believe me when I say this, but my heart does break, for you, break out for you in prayer when I think through what you've gone through. And I do cry out for you in prayer over your pain and your suffering. But also understand that it is in the times where you are suffering that you are most vulnerable to Satan's attacks and temptations to draw you away from God. And so, even in the midst of your suffering, try to make it an effort to examine your heart and to bring your sins before the Lord. Perhaps you've seen anxiety crop up as a result of your suffering. Perhaps your suffering may be potentially driving you to avenues of sexual sin to to try to dull the pain. Whatever it may be, bring those sins before the Lord. And who knows, maybe even by bringing those sins before the Lord, you will begin to see the greater burden in your life. And suddenly you begin to see your suffering and your struggles and you realize that they are simply just momentary light afflictions. Maybe as you confess your sin, you begin to see that all your suffering is interwoven into God's plans for his glory in your life. And ultimately, the reality is that in our lives, we may never really find an answer to the suffering that we're going through. We may never really understand whether this was a direct cause of our sin or simply the Lord's sovereignty in our lives. But the success and the difficulty should not be based on whether or not we know what is going on in the Lord's mind. Our response should always be the same. We hate sin, we repent of it, we trust in Jesus, and we bring it to the Lord in prayer. So that's The second lesson in how to pray through suffering is to profess your sin. The third lesson in how to pray through suffering is to praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his sovereignty. And we see that in verse 19. We've literally, up until this point, we've literally endured hundreds of verses of weeping, mourning, and lamenting. But finally, in verse 19, we get one note, one verse of praise. Verse 19 But you, O Lord, reign forever. 
your throne endures to all generations. After all the turmoil and all the depression we have seen, it's very easy to come to the conviction that God is not in control. There, ha- there is no God if we are suffering like this. The exile, even today, is probably one of the greatest accounts of human suffering. But even in the midst of this, Jeremiah is still able to cry out, You, O Lord, reign forever. Jeremiah here anchors his heart in the sovereignty of God. These, this verse serves as the beginning of what Jeremiah starts as a hopeful conclusion. Despite everything that they have gone through, God still reigns over the heavens and the earth. God still reigns forever, seated on his throne from generations to generations, from creation to exile to Christ, and even today. Yes, we have suffered terribly, but God still reigns. What you believe about God's sovereignty and his supremacy really matters in all seasons of life. And it especially matters, your theology especially matters, when life is difficult. It's easy to thank God for his rule and reign when things are going well. Of course you want to praise God for his sovereignty when you get an A on a test you didn't study for. Of course you want to praise God for his sovereignty when the stock market suddenly turns in in favor of your portfolio. Of course you want to praise God when you get that promotion that you've always been shooting for. But it's another thing to praise God for his sovereignty when things are hard. When things are hard, when trials overwhelm you, that is is when what you really believe about God shows itself. That is when your faith really comes alive. To praise God like Jeremiah has done in his suffering demonstrates a firm confidence in the truth that God works all things for his glory and the good of his people. And when I think of what it means to suffer faithfully, to suffer while praising God, one of the examples that always comes back to my mind is the life of the missionary, John Patton. John Patton was one of the first missionaries to reach the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific. It was an island known for killing Christian missionaries within minutes of setting foot. It was an island whose natives engaged in gruesome practices such as cannibalism, infanticide, and widow sacrifice. And even during his time in ministry there, Patton would see two of his wives die and two of his children die as well. And some of the very people he would try to share the gospel with would later try to scheme plots to murder him. But throughout his course as a missionary, he maintained an autobiography documenting all the disappointments and all the, all the successes he experienced in his ministry. And in that autobiography, he had this to say about the trials he endured. Whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I have never had the trial of doubting that perhaps, after all, Jesus had made some mistake. When we see all his meeting, we shall then understand what now we can only trustfully believe that all is well, all is best for us, best for the cause most dear to us, best for the good of others, and best for the glory of God. This is an example of someone who knows that God is praiseworthy even in the darkest of trials. This is faith that recognizes that any trial that comes my way is not from a spiteful hand, but rather a faithful and loving hand. In fact, God often uses our sufferings to produce character 
endurance, and hope. And for that, God is always worthy and always deserving of our worship, even in our suffering. So I would encourage you today to take whatever you are struggling with today, whatever you are wrestling through, and plug it in to verse 19 and repeat it over and over again and see how it slowly changes your view on that trial. God, I am depressed today, but you, O Lord, reign forever. God, I do not know if there will ever be a cure for my sickness, but you, O Lord, reign forever. God, my friends have all left and abandoned me because I have said I am a Christian, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Whatever it may be in your life, you can give it up to the Lord in full praise because God truly does reign forever. That's our third lesson in how to pray through suffering is to praise God for his sovereignty. And now our last lesson in how to pray through suffering is to plea for restoration. Plea for restoration. And we see that in verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This book ends with a closing plea for restoration. Jeremiah talks openly about the city and he weeps over his agony and now he pleads for God to restore himself. And the word restore means to bring back to cause to return, to invite to a previous position that was better. And notice what Jeremiah is specifically asking to be restored to. Jeremiah is not asking God to restore back the land. He's not asking for riches to be restored. He's not asking for the temple to be restored. Certainly those things are nice to have, but that is not their fundamental need. Jeremiah is asking to be restored to the Lord himself. The longing of Jeremiah's heart for the people of Judah, and the similar longing we should have today, is not that their suffering would be re removed, but that their relationship with God would be restored. Jeremiah's desire is a renewed assurance of God's presence and a confidence in their covenant relationship with God once again. And note here how Jeremiah describes this restoration coming about. They cannot do anything, they cannot earn anything in hopes that God will restore them. Rather, any turning back to God will be through God's own divine invitation. God is the one who must take the initiative in restoring his people back. And I think that's acknowledged in verse 22. In spite of the appeal for God to restore, the author still knows that it is truly up to God whether or not this is what God truly wants to do. And I think that key word lies in the word unless. Je essentially what Jeremiah is saying here is that he is leaving it open-ended to whether Yahweh will truly restore his covenant people. Because it is true. The reality is Judah and Israel, they have sinned and they have violated God's covenant promises. They do not deserve anything. And it will only be through God's grace that, that they will be drawn back. But again, in this closing remark, we do see another crucial lesson in how to pray to God through our suffering. As we ourselves cry out to the Lord, we do not simply call on God to receive our suffering. We do not simply call on God to change our circumstances. 
We call on God so that we might be reconciled in our relationship to him. That is still what is going to be primary. Perhaps one of the greatest attacks on Christianity today is the message of the prosperity gospel. For those of you who don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it's essentially a false teaching that teaches all Bible-believing Christians are automatically entitled to earthly health and wealth as part of their salvation. And what angers me most about this distortion of the gospel is that it blinds so many individuals to what the true purpose of suffering is in their lives. Listen to what one prosperity gospel preacher, Joel Osteen, had to say about suffering. God will pay you back double for the unfair things that have happened. The key is to go through suffering with a good attitude, knowing that God has promised you greater is coming. It may not happen overnight, but it will happen. God is faithful. But if there's one thing in our studies that we've learned through Lamentations in these last several weeks, is that the purpose of suffering is not to get paid back double what we have endured. It's not because something greater in this world is guaranteed. The purpose of suffering is that we humble ourselves back into the presence of God. That we see our sufferings as a time to take up our cross and follow Jesus in his perfect obedience. No, God never promises to pay us back double for our tribulations. But he will use our pain and suffering to drive us to a place where we might discover the true and lasting joy of coming even closer to God once again. And so as we go through our suffering and our pain, where it is needed in our lives, continue to call on the Lord to restore himself to you. Even right now, he may be giving us opportunities in the midst of suffering to have a deeper, fuller trust in him. That he might use us to strengthen our relationship with him as he calls us to himself. As we pray through our suffering, perhaps we see that the greatest blessing we can get in this life is not for suffering to end, but to renew our relationship with the one and true living God again. As the book of Lamentation ends, we do not see an answer to suffering. Nothing changes about Judah's estate at all. Yet Jeremiah is able to change his disposition from weeping and despair to a confident conviction that God will act according to his promises. Jeremiah is able to pull a complete 180. Not because he sees anything changing about his circumstances, but because he reminds himself once again of his theology and what he knows about God. And Jeremiah knows that God will always act according to his purposes, and God will always act according to his character. And because of these two pillars, even as Jeremiah witnesses one of the most atrocious acts of human evil, he is able to say, morning by morning, new mercies I see. As we close out this book, I have a few more final thoughts I'd like to point out for you. Obviously, I think the first question in your mind is, well, what does happen to Judah? And in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, which I believe occurs after this book is written, Jeremiah does eventually prophesy, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
God does eventually answer Jeremiah's prayers for restoration. He does promise that once again, his people will one day be restored to him. As I mentioned last week, the book of Ezra does point to a time when the temple will be rebuilt. Judah does not get to reclaim everything, but they do partially get back some of its cities and its riches from before. But still the temple and the city are just earthly blessings. Beyond that, there is an even greater completion to this story. Two chapters later, after Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah further goes on to prophesy and tell of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. More glorious than freedom from exile, Jeremiah proclaims of a new covenant that will deal with the largest problem humanity has ever faced, a problem far more dangerous than the Babylonian exile. It deals with the problem of our sinful human hearts. And in the New Testament, we know that this new covenant that Jeremiah describes about ultimately points to Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to mediate a new covenant between us and God that is far greater than the old covenant God used to have with Judah. The new covenant inaugurated in the word of Christ will bring an end to eternal condemnation and judgment. The new covenant makes it possible for us to be born again as new believers. While Jeremiah never gets to see Christ in his earthly ministry, this Messiah was ultimately what he longed for. And we even see that in Lamentations. As I've already been trying to allude to in each sermon, the Holy Spirit inspires Jeremiah to write in such a way that Christ's fingerprints, that this pointing to the new covenant is all over this book. This book is full of hints and foreshadowings of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah's writings describe not only Judah's current distress, but they point to a future fulfillment of these sufferings as well. And let me show you exactly what I mean. In chapter 1, 14, it writes, My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon his neck. But later we see that it is Christ who has all his people's transgressions bound into a yoke and put upon his neck in the form of a cross. In chapter 2, verse 15, Jeremiah describes that the witnesses hiss and they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? And Mark picks up this very same verb in his own gospel. In Mark 15, 29, Jesus' own enemies mock him at the cross. And Mark writes, they wag their heads, saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. In chapter 3, verse 13, he writes, he drove into the my kidneys, the arrows of his quiver. And it is when Jesus dies on the cross that they do the, seri- the very same action when the centurions come and they pierce his sides with a spear. In chapter 4, verse 1, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. 
And this same image shows up in the New Testament when Matthew records that the rocks of the temple were split when Jesus finally yields up his spirit on the cross. And in chapter 520, when Jeremiah asks, why do you forsake us? It was Christ in his deepest agony who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Christ who in that moment understood what the full judgment of the Father felt like. And I can keep on pointing out more and more for you. But saturated throughout this book of Lamentations are pointers to the saving work of Christ. Judah was a faithless son of God, disciplined for their disobedience. Christ was the faithful son of God, crushed for our redemption. You cannot look at these sufferings and lamentations. You cannot look at what Judah has gone through and say that God is cruel or God is merciless or that God is unjust because God takes these sufferings and he eventually pours out all of them on his very own son. In each poem, Jesus is witnessing and proclaiming himself. And I think all these fingerprints illustrate that even in Jeremiah's deepest laments, Christ is very much present and Christ is very much walking with him. And it is still the same with us today. Even in our darkest moments, we can search and we can find that, yes, Christ is still there with us. In Lamentations, God never once utters a word, but their cries are never on deaf ears. God never speaks in this book, but he is still very much present. And now, as New Testament saints, we know the reality of this presence much more clearly. After his completed work on his cross, Christ now dwells in union with each one of us, right there with us as we suffer. The reality is that in a lot of cases in our life, our sufferings will never cease. The reality is that on this earth, we may never find an answer to some of the pain we have endured, but we can always rest in the truth that Christ is present with us and he will never let suffering have the final say in our lives. He will never let grief, affliction, mourning, or lament ever be the final word you utter in your life. Because of Christ's perfect life, he has purchased full restoration on our behalf. We still live in a broken world, yes, but we look forward to the promises in God's word. That one day, because of the work of Christ, all laments will indeed cease. Christ has come to deal with the problem under the problem, our very own sin. And Christ has come so that one day all of our lamenting will end. And in that day of Christ's return, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But until that day that Christ comes, we will continue to lament. We continue to lament over pain in our lives, pain in others' lives, pain in this world. But we can lament with confidence knowing that Jesus will indeed come again. Let's pray. Father, we come before you pouring out our hearts to you. We pour out every frustration, every anxiety, every stress we have because you know, you remember, and you will deliver according to your love. We profess that we have let sin corrupt our affections for you, and we ask that we would have spirits of repentance in all circumstances. But we praise you for your reign, and you are sovereign in ways that we could never achieve. And we ask that we would never stop drawing near to you, and that you would never stop making yourself known to us. And we know this is indeed true because you have given us your son, a friend and a help who is with us in all circumstances. 
And we thank you that he is not only the fulfillment of your word, but now also our deliverer. So we ask and we long that we would rest on him patiently and hopefully from now until the day he returns. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing a song response.